Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Gilman. This is episode 217. So this is, uh, what, the second episode since our lockdown? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the thing is, okay, so I'm considered, uh, and I'm using air quotes here for those who can't see, um, I'm considered a, uh, uh, what's it called, um, required employee. So I'm still going into the office. And, uh, and you know, I'm a basement rat, so I go to the office and then I come home and I go to the basement and then I work on projects and stuff. So not a whole lot has changed for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, seriously, it kind of hasn't. <laughs> yeah, I've been working from home, but it's like when I'm when I because I used to work. For, I work from home on Tuesdays before this for the podcast, but it's just like my life hasn't really changed like i i don't like going out to bars and stuff so i guess if you have a social life your life has changed a lot what's that exactly <laughs> i'm an introvert and engineer like <laughs> yeah um i've been working on projects and playing the new doom game and oh so yeah. good yes it is very good yeah doom internal inject it into my veins <laughs> i i i I picked that up on Friday and I clocked way too many hours on it over the weekend. <laughs> like way well, too many hours. Well, hopefully not enough that blocked you from doing projects. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, it, it, maybe it did. <laughs> it did. <laughs> no, I got some stuff done. Uh, like I, I was, it was Sunday night at like nine o'clock at night. And it's like, Oh, I actually have to accomplish something this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, okay, so I've actually got two new designs that are going through at work. Um, I wish I could share what they are, but they're top secret right now. But I can tell that they are both highly dependent on frequency stability. Uh, so they, they, they do something that requires that. And uh, when it comes down to it, um, getting, getting frequency tested properly is not mm -hmm. necessarily the easiest thing. And, and traditionally, we've used uh, the, the frequency counters on our scopes because those have been good enough for what we do. I mean, for audio purposes, that's most yeah. of the time that's enough. But I actually ended up purchasing a um, one of the Amazon Wonders or the Chinese Wonder um, frequency counters. You know, those like sub $100 frequency counters, the 3156. It's basically, if you go and, and search for the 3156 frequency counter, you find the exact same frequency counter with like... 18 different brand names on it so it's like it's clearly made in one location they just slap a different sticker on it um so it's actually a good frequency counter uh, so because i've been testing some um some of our oscillators on it uh in fact i had a client project where i had six different oscillators to calibrate for this person and i was able to calibrate to eight octaves of um tuning on it eight octaves positive and who, who knows how many negative i wasn't uh, really worried about the negative, but um, this this frequency counter was great for that. Um, it's kind of I don't know. It's got a little bit of wonky UI features going on. Like you have to like scroll through like configurations to change modes and things. It's really I don't know. It it's cheap. Let's just put it that way. It's really cheap. It has one unfortunate thing that I'm actually looking up them on Amazon as you're talking. And speaking of funny brand names, this is my favorite one we've come across so far. Coolertron with a K. Coolertron yeah. makes frequency counters. Yes. Is it? Wait, isn't there a person on uh, our Slack channel named Coolertron? 
Could be. He's the same person. I'm pretty sure there is. Yeah. Like an active member. I'm I don't know. I've seen that name. So, okay. Uh, that's awesome. Though. I, yeah, I like maybe, that maybe they're selling. Yeah, maybe they're, they're an Amazon reseller. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, Give us so, a discount. So get this. <laughs> so the, the frequency counter is great. It, it has a knob for the, uh, the gate length. So your gate length is basically the amount of time that it's sampling your, your frequencies over. And, and depending on the position of the knob, you get higher or lower um, resolution. I'm not in a rush right now. So I have my gate length maximized so I get as many decimal places of resolution as I can. Uh, just it helps out a lot. The, the thing that kind of sucks about it is there's no there's no real averaging or anything that you can do with this device. Uh, so, like, if I'm measuring, say I'm measuring 50 or 100 hertz or something like that, I can get four decimal places of accuracy. And, you know, for most applications, that I don't need that much accuracy. But mm. I'm doing development right now, and I want to find what is the overall accuracy of my design such that I can back it off and find out what my tolerances of my components are. I can make things cheaper, right? So I, mm. right now I do want a ton of accuracy in this. The most annoying part of, of everything is the ability to not have averaging because the numbers do bounce around a bit. And the, with your gate time turned all the way max on this device, it's 10-second sampling time. So mm -hmm. you find your, I don't know, variability every 10 seconds. It's really annoying to wait that long. So I would love to hack this device and somehow add averaging into it. I just came up with this idea like two hours ago because I was calibrating something and I was like, man, it would be really nice if I could average on this. And so I kind of wanted to open the conversation about what's a way to like crack into a device like this and hack it such that I can get averaging. Um, so I, I searched for schematics of it and nothing really shows up. There is a guy who has a website that just has some like gutch photos and a list of all the ICs. But they said on the website, they're like, I, I didn't trace out anything. So they <laughs> just have like a list of ICs. Um, so I don't know exactly like the, what the, what the, the baseline function of it or how it works or anything. Um, but what I'm kind of thinking is, okay, so there's, there's a brute force way that I, that I could really just get the values out of this and it's, it would be really annoying, but it would work. You could, you could just tap off all the lines to the display, right? And then just back, back translate it and grab the numbers, right? But that's a ton of wires. Um, and you'd have to have something that would be able to read all of those lines and work it all out. You could, if you were doing it that way, um, it's probably a spy screen, so it wouldn't be that many wires. So, on, I don't think it is. Cause, well, okay, so there's two boards in this device. One is quite obviously the actual frequency counter, and the second one is like a display board. And on the display board, there's a microcontroller. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a microcontroller on each board. So in between, there's a small like ribbon cable that, I don't know, I think it has 10 wires that go in between. Um, so they, clearly the PIC microcontroller on the, on the front board is handling all the display action. Mm -hmm. So it, some, the, the, the actual values are getting passed in between the two boards. I don't know if that's spy or whatnot. It might be. And that might be the easiest way to kind of hack into this is to just sniff those lines and see what's traveling in between. Is this the one with the... It looks like it just has a LED readout? 
I mean, it's a yeah, a bunch of seven segment displays. Okay, so that is this is the one. Did you get the Gain Express? <laughs> Gain Express? Oh no! Like mine starts with a Y. Like I, I honestly, I don't even know how to pronounce the name of the company. But I mean, if you if you look these things up, I swear to God, there's like twenty companies that do the exact same thing with a sticker on the front. Yeah, and the sticker is quite crappy. Yeah, there's like Victor Tech yep. Power. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lux Tech Pro. So th- yeah, th- that's kind of what I, I would buy to... mine from Coolertron though. <laughs> I want a piece of equipment that says Coolertron on it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. oh yeah, Gain Express. There you go. L- uh, let me see if I can find the one uh, that I got. I mean, I bought it from Amazon a few months ago. Not Victor. Ooh, there's more than one Victor's out there. Oh yeah, so you could totally sn- that's easier because I was looking at the one that had an actual like TFT display on it. Oh, that would. And be, I'm like, yeah, man, that. Yeah, you'd have to like, it, it. You would have to read that and then figure out where on the screen you're pulling the data from. So this is a little easier. Exactly. Yeah. Um, if you really want to do it like the convoluted way, that wouldn't require any opening up the box. You could get a Raspberry Pi with the camera module and then just <laughs> just do vision. Image- and do a vision capture for it. You're right. You could actually probably get that working in like an hour. <laughs> That's, you know... Uh, oh, here it is. Y-I-T-E-N-S-E-N. Yetenzen uh, is the one that... Oh, I yeah. Have. I'm actually just... Click that one. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the guy. Um, so, yeah. Like, I don't know. Okay. So, what, what are some other ways that could perhaps uh, work for this? Without okay, you could always just make a frequency counter in a frequency counter, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I think is there's different ways to go about it. Yeah, is depending on how much knowledge you have to reverse engineer from the device. Yeah, like the I don't care about anything inside the box idea is a vision system that looks at it and just gets the number. Sure, right. That would be like, because that way you don't have to look, know anything about what's inside the box. Then there's one more step would be like hacking the display, what the output is. Yeah. Ha- so hacking the display is the most like surefire way because you know what the display is showing. So you know what the data should be. That's yes. probably like the easiest. But look at how many segments you'd have to read in order to get an accurate number. It wouldn't surprise me if there is a. Uh, segment display controller on it and you usually talk to those with spy yeah and so if you could look at that board i I don't know what pictures or ics are on this thing i'll just rip mine apart and and, yeah and and i bet you if you found what ics actually driving it and found the data sheet you would just you would just go on the front end of that chip which would be whatever's talking telling it what the display read those couple data lines because it's going to be spy probably it's going to have a one data line and uh, a clock maybe and yeah that's yeah i think i think you're right i think that's probably the easiest way i can probably just get an arduino to sniff those lines yep and And then then just uh, spit out on serial yeah yeah that's because i would love it if i could take i don't know mm, 20 readings and average them uh then i think i could get some really good information off of it you know another thing that i really would like to do with it is instead of averaging i was noticing on the device that i have today if i make an instantaneous jump in frequency so if i send a control voltage 
to go from one frequency to the next it it does the jump and then there's a little bit of drift afterwards i would love to plot what that drift is uh so you know maybe actually you know it'd be really cool is to have an arduino where you press a button it sends the control voltage or at least talks to something that can send the control voltage and then starts plotting all of those lines yeah actually uh, um, that would be great with some of the more recent arduino stuff like it has a built-in plotter like you know how's that built-in serial terminal right there's yeah. actually a built-in plotter too yeah so you could plot your frequency over time graph i would love to see if that's something predictable in um in these devices also it'd be kind of nice to just have an arduino take i don't know a thousand points of data over an hour and see what mm -hmm. happens to the frequency as it just sits so, um, so i'm also going to be doing a bunch of temperature testing here soon so um you know put them in a box heat them up let them soak for 20 minutes and then take a bunch of readings so it'd be nice to have this for all like i'd probably have a few weeks of testing with all of this stuff going on yeah, crack it open, see, because it is using some IC to drive that whole display, and it's probably, right. uh, and it's probably talked to by Spy. It's yeah, it's probably a singular um, control IC that controls all the segments on this thing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're right. That's probably the best way, and then you can just read the data sheet and sniff the lines. Yep. And you've got a uh, logic analyzer. Yes, I do. Yeah, there you go. And cool. then you would, and I bet you you can. Use a generic Arduino library that's uh, like a spy in and mm. just output it onto your uh, serial terminal and then figure out how to decode it into what the, it should be displaying. Right, right. And and the, the whole thing about the display is that it changes decimal points. That's going to be the hardest part because the, it, it, the decimal point shifts all over the place. No, because so you'll know more. that by the data, though. Right, but I'm gonna. I'll know that by the data, but I'm gonna have to interpret that. You know. Oh yeah. It's not. It's not much of a problem. I'm saying like it's easy, but that's probably the hardest part. You know. So, the, uh, yeah, I like that. That's that's a that's a good way of doing it. And you I, said it I was could also just go buy a frequency counter that has averaging in it. <laughs> well, actually, this could be more powerful because oh. now you have a programmable device that is quote-unquote hooked in to the output of your uh your uh test equipment yeah uh, and you know i've seen inside this box there's so much room in it that um i might just sacrifice an arduino and put it in there and drill a hole in the side and have like a little usb thing where i can just plug in and then now i have uh um oh what's it called um data memory so cool let me know how i'll i'll be expecting at least Figuring out how to read, like if it's spy or not, by next week. By next I'm, week, I'm actually okay. super interested. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I, I, I thought about this and I was like, this sounds like a Parker project. <laughs> yeah, if, if you if you figure this out, I'm probably going to copy it. Oh, cool. Yeah, because I'd love to have, um, a really good frequency counter. Because usually, I I do a lot of record uh recording of stuff, hmm. and that's why I don't really have a uh, frequency counter because. The ones that can actually record are a little pricey. Yeah, they, they, they get up there. And, and I mean, like I said, for this thing, I was able to, to excuse me, calibrate um, my oscillators to eight octaves, which is uh, quite a bit, you know, for... But, but I mean, uh, my frequency range is a tenth of a hertz to 20 kilohertz uh, mm -hmm. for the most part. So I'm using a very, very small portion of this thing's capability because it goes to 2.4 gigahertz. So...
the thing the thing about this this guy that's that's important and really important with any good frequency counter uh, is that they have an ovenized crystal in them. So you tur you have to turn them on and you have to let them sit. Uh, because like if you start taking measurements, it's going to be off. They have to mm -hmm. come up to temperature and they have to like sit and soak for a long time. So I usually show up at work, turn this thing on, and then like start going like two hours later. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I guess I have a, a, a little mini project um, to do for next week. Uh, yeah. Figuring out what that chip is. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Baby steps. Baby steps. <laughs> So uh, you can't knock a project out in one week. That's just not the right way to go about it. No, no, that'd be unfair. That'd be unfair to you. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So uh, I've got another uh, simulation that uh, I got for everyone up on my GitHub. Um, I actually had some questions about where my GitHub is. So github.com slash analog ENG. That's where you can find it. We'll put a link up to that. So... Uh, uh, I've actually been using this for a while in LT Spice, and um, I wanted to uh, share this with everyone. One thing that I, I've found cool about LT Spice is they make arbitrary sources really easy to use. In P Spice, I've found them to be really difficult, if not just completely non-existent. Uh, so, an, an arbitrary source is a source that you can apply a function to. So that makes your circuit simulation incredibly powerful because a lot of times you might have sub circuits or whole chunks of circuits that do a particular thing like i don't know take a whole circuit where its entire purpose is to perform an exponentiation on an input you can just use an arbitrary source and plug in that function and there you go you have it you just exp whatever instead of having to simulate all those components you're just saying this performs like this exactly exactly gotcha. and the cool thing is the input can be whatever you want it to be so you can just say the input is the voltage on node xyz and it will take that and it and and what's great is it's not a static thing you can have this be in feedback loops you can have them be control signals you can have them do whatever you want so in this simulation that i have here i actually have two different circuits where i have um, one source that is uh, producing a um, negative to one volt to a positive one volt triangle wave, and then that is being used inside of a uh, an exponential voltage arbitrary source and an exponential current arbitrary source, and then I have them in some op-amp stuff that you can play around with. Um, so I've actually used this quite a bit in simulating VCA circuits. So that's voltage-controlled amplifiers. So you have you have an amplifier where the gain can be adjusted b via the voltage from a different portion of the circuit. So like, take a compressor, uh, a compressor circuit where if if the overall uh, energy of of your signal reaches some kind of threshold, then it automatically reduces the gain of the circuit, well, you can actually simulate that by using arbitrary sources as your gain control blocks. And if you want to use nonlinear functions like exponential or logarithm or something like that, you can actually pull it off. So this is a really powerful uh, technique and the uh, LT Spice has made it really, really freaking easy. So I'm, I'm super impressed with that, mainly because I've been using P-Spice for years and years and doing these kinds of things have always been really difficult. In LT Spice, you just plop down one of these symbols, voltage or current or whatever, and it just says F 
is equal to, you know, or I'm sorry, voltage is equal to F of, and then plug in your, your function that you want. So super nice. <clears throat> the cool thing about it too, is that you can embed these in sub circuits. So we have some voltage controlled amplifier ICs that we use at work. And I ended up creating a sub circuit for this voltage controlled amplifier that uh, I can then just plug in and embedded within the sub circuit is one of these uh, arbitrary sources with a function in it because these particular VCAs read a voltage on a control pin, but then they control the gain of a current flowing through X in an exponential format. So it's a voltage controlling an exponential current. So it's a really nonlinear, very weird kind of thing, but it's super easy if you just have functions available. And so works out really, really well. And I've used these to simulate, um, well, amplifiers, but also voltage controlled filters and uh, like moving filters and things like that. <clears throat> so give it a, give it a look. That's github.com slash analog ENG. And you can check out the simulations page along with all the other ones I've done this year. Yeah. I think, uh, last week I forgot to put the link up and I had someone, uh, or I think the last simulation of the week was three weeks ago. Yeah. It was a little like while that. ago. Anyways, I forgot to put the link in there. So my, that was my bad. That's all good. So what you been up to, Parker? I've been doing lots of work on on my 3D printer and kind of like reverse engineering components and stuff like that. Kind of like learning more about that. This is kind of like an extension of my Autodesk Fusion 360 adventure. Have Have you tried the slicer in 360 yet? No, I have not tried the slicer yet. Um, I was going to try it, and then I ended up having to basically run my printer for two weeks straight. And, um, yeah, I haven't, uh, I basically, like, it works right now perfectly, so I don't want to mess with it. <laughs> so it's like, now since I'm, like, kind of done printing, uh, that whole two-week span, um, I'm probably gonna... Quick, quick, quick side story real quick. Yeah, yeah. Buddy of mine worked at HP, and he worked in the server division, and he was writing assembly code for a lot of the low-level stuff that happens in the, in the... Uh, server side of things and I mean he was fresh out of college and he started looking through all of this assembly stuff and he was just like man this is garbage this code is terrible he's like I could write 10 times better and he's like I already have written some routines that are a lot better than this and he goes to his boss and was like hey you know like I, I would really like the opportunity to, to uh, rewrite these things and his boss was like no 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 it works. You don't touch it. Don't ever ask again. Like, <laughs> like crap spaghetti code, but whatever. It worked. Yep. Until it doesn't work. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, I would think an HP server has to work all the time, right? Sure. <laughs> sure. <laughs> That's what they want you to think. Yeah, right. They, well, they um, got to me then. Yeah. Um, so I'm at the point where I'm going to start doing some... Uh, uh, 3D printer improvements for my Monoprice Ultimate Maker. Um, so stuff that it already has that actually it had this when you were still here in Houston. Oh. So it has a internal Raspberry Pi that runs OctoPrint, which is like a print server. Um, so you could just drag and drop from your browser uh, the files and you can control everything through it. It's really nice not having to basically mess with the interface on the printer. Right, because it's like one dial... And like and a push button and a push button, yeah. yeah. Well, no, the dial is the push button, right? 
Yes. Yeah. So you press it, and the rotor encoder knocks not, uh, notches over, and you selected <laughs> something else. Yeah. I hate that so much. It's the worst. <laughs> um, so yeah, I got Octoprint running on it. Um, I have an, a micro Swiss all metal hot end, which allows you to run hotter temperature stuff. Um, because the stock one has a, a PTFE or a, a Teflon liner. And when you heat up that liner, it doesn't like it. Um, cause it gets really soft and gooey and starts gumming up your, uh, your flow. I mean, we are um, talking about 250 Celsius. It is pretty hot. It is pretty hot. Yes. Um, and it has an enclosure and it has what's called a BL touch. Actually, it did not have the BL touch when you were here. That's something that you would find really interesting. It's like a a mechanical pin that can will touch the bed, and the moment it touches the bed, it, it like it triggers, I guess, a uh, a lever or something inside of it, and so it knows it. it basically, it's it's zeroing. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, so, does it have like a switch that it sends to the? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's, I, it's, I actually had a um, for the CNC that I, I got. I, I put a, um, gosh, years and years ago. I, I paid a, uh, well, I shouldn't even say paid. He, he made it for me for free. <laughs> I, I, the, the guy who ran the lathe at our, um, at uh, the first company I worked with, I was like, what kind of accuracy can you get? And he's like, I can promise you four zeros. So I was like, make me, make me a piece of steel that's one inch. To four zeros and he totally did it so i, I have a one inch little block and um and and i use that to touch off of my my uh, work piece yeah so it, it's that same thing but it but it does um i have it set to do auto bed leveling um so instead of having to basically drive the head around and figure out what your zero is by by, by calibrating it with usually a piece of paper by sliding it under to go yeah that feels like good it's enough about the same right yeah. Yeah. it actually just drives around the bed and then touches all the points and then it maps that out. And so it has what level it is. And so actually when it's driving around, it's adjusting the Z. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. It's, it's really nice. And basically you don't have to ever touch the uh, bed ever again. Um, so it's got all that, um, and a bag of chips. So what I want to do is improve like the cable management. Cause it's got this like really fat, wide ribbon cable that comes off the back of the printer and then down into the enclosure that goes to the head and that has most of the control signals and all the power and all that good stuff but it's kind of unruly because it's wide and flat and i'm hoping to see if i can replace it with kind of like a just a normal round cable that can actually put through like a some cable management how many how many signals is it it's a it is it is a two by ten connector I don't know how many actual what are power or ground. Someone's got a pin out online for it. Mm. So I was going to replicate it into like a cable. And um, I was actually going to use your idea and just use like split loom. Yeah. For the, because uh, I don't want an E-chain because E-chain would, wouldn't really actually make sense for this because it's like the head drives around and everything comes off the top. Right. Right. And so I was going to use loom like you did and all the BL touch signals are not in that wire, that that two by ten uh, wire uh, connector, and so those are just kind of like taped together. It looks like your old CNC machine used to be, <laughs> where all the wires are kind of just dangling off the head and just like hell yeah. And it's just like it doesn't move enough to where it needs 
like protection, I guess. But yeah. I want I want to actually loom it just so it makes it look nicer. Um, and then I needed that fixed bed, um, which has been working really good with the VL Touch. Um, after a year and a half, because I basically I printed the standoffs because I because um, I guess I should backpedal a little bit. The stock bed has springs on it. And so you, you adjust screws on the bottom to adjust the angle of the bed so you can make it level. Right. When you get a BL touch or any kind of like sensor that's detecting auto bed leveling, you want a fixed bed so it doesn't flex at all. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I actually printed uh, standoffs, which worked great, except that I just noticed that one of them is actually starting to melt. <laughs> so the bed is hot enough to deform them basically oh geez well so it's a I heated to, bed right it's a heated bed yeah and, I, and the bed's actually at 110 c oh geez yeah <laughs> yeah my bed can boil water <laughs> so so the level the level is not level no but it prints fine because it has a bill touch right because it, it detects it, what it the automatically level is. compensates yeah so i need to get those 3d printed parts out and probably switch them over to Oh, something that's got a really low coefficient of um, thermal expansion. So I, w- I was not going to use aluminum. Aluminum would be easy. Um, maybe I'll probably just get steel spacers. Ceramic. Ceramic. <laughs> you want it to be stable? I wonder if I can get three quarters inch tall ceramic. Stone. Uh, stone. Granite. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, So the CNC that I operate at, at work... Uh, I'm so spoiled by it, but it has it has its own coding language called Simple, and uh, so it it doesn't run on G code. It can, but the Simple code is so much nicer, and everything is just function commands in it, and mm-hmm. it's all it's basically like C uh, effectively. But um, the Z probing, like you're you're talking about on yours, uh, I that's just a command on mine. So whenever mm-hmm. I go to like cut a new thing i throw down my my material i find an edge and then everything else is just done i just load the program and the program already tells it like move to this corner probe this much with this xy grid and things oh it's super nice yeah that's actually built into uh the firmware is there's a g-code command that you run and he goes okay i'm gonna run bed leveling and then figure out what the bed yeah that that one g-code that you run Opens up like a bazillion other G yeah, codes. lines of code. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I want to get the. I need to fix the the bed spacers. Um, I don't know what material I want to use. Make it out of yet. Um, it's actually ceramic. If I can find ceramic, that'd be really good. Steel would probably be fine. Steel is uh, what, what the rule of thumb is: one thousandth of an inch for every hundred degrees Fahrenheit. I can't remember. So, yeah, it, that should be fine. Yeah. I mean, if you're yeah. talking about two thousandths of an inch worth of movement, yeah. your bed's yeah. not that accurate, I bet. No. Uh, the aluminum plate that it is may add a probably warps more than that. Yeah. Um, and then I also need to upgrade the fans because about halfway through this podcast so far, um, the printer finally stopped printing for the day and shut off. And I could actually hear myself think now. <laughs> the this printer originally came with sleeved bearing fans which are fairly noisy fans to begin with but now it's probably got i don't know several hundred hours maybe thousand hours of prints on them on this machine 
and they're getting kind of noisy. So I'm just going to go through. I got to open up the uh, the printer up, find all the measurements for the fans, order some ball bearing fans on you know Amazon or eBay or whatever, and replace all those guys. And then I started looking at how do I make my prints faster, and not just like printing faster, but like hey, what about making the setup basically it you know heating up and it doing the auto bed leveling cuz it does that every single time how do i make that faster and so i started looking at the uh like what it does when it first turns on and and starts to heat up everything well first it heats just the bed up and that takes from cold from room temperature to 110c takes it 8 minutes cuz it's a 24 volt heater on it which isn't actually that bad there's most bed heaters out there can't even do that ever. Like they can't even get the 110 C, um, let alone in eight minutes. So I'm like, okay, that's not too bad. And then the, the, uh, hot end, which is the extruder part only takes six minutes. And so, but it waits for one to be done and then does the other. So I'm like, okay, is there a way I can make that happen at the same time? So I looked it up and apparently you just inject some different code in your starting commands that your, your slicer puts in there for the G-code. Bam, that fixes that problem. So now I basically almost halved my startup time, which is pretty good. And then I'm also thinking about improving that even more. Basically, if I can make the bed heat up in the same time as the extruder, that's like optimal. Basically, they heat up at the same time. And so I'm looking at putting in a 120 volt AC uh, heater for the bed. <laughs> It's 500 watts. Yeah, one minute to get that hot. Yeah, actually, yeah, it's about a minute and a half to get that hot. <laughs> um, and actually, I would actually code the firmware to... It's just to a relay, and it connects it right to mains, right? Well, I was, yeah, you actually <laughs> use a solid-state relay. that So you use the MOSFET-driven output that is normally doing the 24-volt output to the uh, original bed, and you have that driving a solid-state relay that's turning your 120-volt on and off put that on there um but you also probably should put a thermal fuse in it yeah you don't want it just running away yeah because you're you're connecting directly in so like what if the solid state relay fails that's like that's the worst case scenario what right? is the uh what's the common um failure mode for solid state relays is it is it closed what happened to the one on your brewery that one that one was open that one did not short okay Okay. Yeah. Hopefully the common mode is open. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah, but you might but who knows? Maybe not. Yeah, who knows? And it could it could be fused. It could fuse together inside there. Um so I'm going to put a thermal fuse in there. Um I don't know what temperature to rate that thermal fuse for. So if anyone out there knows, let me know. I've actually tried searching for it. Hot. Yeah, that actually people don't do that. Scary. Yeah, I know. It's just like, you know, I kind of... Especially since I actually leave my printer alone while it's printing. <laughs> I know that's a big no-no, but... You go to work and have it print, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you need some protection on that. <laughs> yeah, so I want to put the uh, thermal fuse in there. I do have a a smoke detector, but it's like, well, the smoke <laughs> detector is going off. It's Garage you know, is, is done. Like, yeah. It all yeah. goes up. Yeah. Hmm. Um, also, I can turn it off remotely, so... That's cool. That Octoprint allows me to do Can that. you do That's it from your cool. phone? Uh, yes, because you just hit an IP address and then log in. Oh, okay. 
yeah so you can do it technically through your phone um so yeah if there's you know okay so if you're doing this you know you need to add a little webcam on the head too i have a webcam that sits off to the side that looks at it oh okay yeah so basically like if i'm printing at home i just have it on like a uh, a different window at at work, and I can just like check in on it every couple of minutes. Dude, why don't you hook up a particle to the webcam and have it tweet during prints? So like oh, yeah. every I don't know thirty minutes, you get a tweet of progress. It's on fire, yo! <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. So, um, so if anyone out there has recommendations for the thermal fuse, let me know because I don't know what. I probably need to actually take the temperature of this bed, like when it's running, and actually the silicon uh, 500 watt one. Like, what's the its temperature when it's ramping up? Because like, because this is going to be mounted directly to the heater on the bottom side, so it's going to be hotter than the top of the bed. Do you have a thermal camera? No, I do not. Mm. My thermal camera is my finger. <laughs> It'd be nice to see if your bed has like ridiculous hot spots. See if it like varies by 20, 30 degrees. It probably does. Probably, but you know. I mean, it's just a quarter of inch of aluminum, so there's not too much heat spreading through that. I don't know. But the, actually, the silicon heater is going to be better. Why don't, you re- why don't you replace it with cast iron? <laughs> this machine cast yeah, iron. Yeah, just flat cast iron on the top and rough on the bottom. Ooh, you should cast a new table. I would. Oh, that'd be so cool. Way too much. <laughs> Way too much scope creep. Um, so, yes, if any people have suggestions for the thermal fuse, let me know. And then another one is um, I probably need to take apart the rails and clean them because I've actually never done that. I've I've lubricated them a couple times with just like three-in-one electrical motor oil, but I know that's not what you're supposed to use because uh, it gets a little gummy. Um, so if anyone has suggestions for what to use for lubrication, Steven says, um, white lithium, but I don't think you're supposed to use those on these kind of rails cause it, it's a sleeve bearing. And I always think that'd get a little gummy. White, white lithium. Well, okay. White lithium or three in one is my go-to for like, if I Anything? need, if I need something, okay. Like if it's a chain, I'm going to use three in one, but if it's like two faces that rub against each other i'll throw some white lithium on it like that's sort of just like the first thing that comes to mind mm-hmm. so i think uh mike williams who's been on this podcast before he suggested uh sewing machine oil hmm. what's special about that it's for sewing machines <laughs> i think it's a really lightweight oil yeah like a really low viscosity thin oil hmm. so I wouldn't. Be, oh. you know, if um, uh, the 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 bearings, they're linear, they're linear bearings, right? Yes. Uh, if you go to McMaster, there might be some information on that. You know. Oh, what the lubricate them with? Yeah, yeah. Or or you could probably go find some data sheets for them. We uh, the the linear bearings uh, on the CNC at work that we have, um, we have some like super like crazy expensive German grease stuff. But I bet you it's just like regular grease with a German name on it, and uh, it looks like <laughs> earwax that you have to like squirt into all the little injection points, you know. Zerk fittings. Is that what they're called? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Zerk fittings. They are an absolute pain in the butt to get to. Are Zerk fitting? Well, you might not have the right fitting on your grease gun. No, um, I, I got the right fitting. It's still uh, it's a pain in the butt, as in like the gantry has them in weird places. Ah. Uh, yeah. 
I wonder if Zerk fitting is uh, short for something. Oh, it's named after the person who came up with it. Oscar Ulysses Zerk. Cool. I want a fitting named after me. I've, something like that would be, you know. Okay, I, it, back in college we That's had this cool conversation about like Zerk. if you had a if you had a, a a unit named after you, like a Dillman would not be a good name no, for a unit, be. nor would a Craig. You know, like it just doesn't really doesn't work too well. No, no. Well, what would you? What would you? So you just want a fitting? So a Craig would be a fitting? Yeah, no. I could I could see I could see a Craig fitting being something at. Uh, at Home Depot, like you, you, you'd find that, and it would be like I don't know. There'd be like a one of those plastic tags on it with the K, and like you would just have to know it's a Craig fitting, but it's just it says K on on the side. You know how they have like the M and the F for for all like pipe fittings now and stuff. Instead of like oh, actually yeah. knowing things, they just say like M and F on the side or whatever. Gotcha, gotcha. There, there is a um, pocket screw company uh, that. That does Craig, but it's K R E G instead of K R A I G. So of of course I bought that so I could have a Craig pocket screw. What <laughs> 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 one day I'll have something named after me. One day. You have Craig amplification. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh, so what's been spurring all this three D printing though? I've been doing for the past couple weeks yeah. is I've been doing a lot of uh kind of like reverse engineering uh building components for my wagon um like a a column a, a steering column bezel that has switches and stuff on it so i'm like measuring trying to figure out like how to me properly measure things because in sketchup world how i'm used to is you kind of just drew it and then i'd print it and be like okay i need to adjust this this and this probably and just kind of fudge it right tweak. and then you yeah you tweak it enough and then you get something well with Autodesk Fusion 360, it's like, I want this to be one inch by three inches. <laughs> right. It, it, it's, it, very, it's not a tweaking software. No, it's it's parametric. And so I'm like, okay, I got to get parametric with how I measure things to draw them. And so I'm like, well, I only have a six inch digital caliper. So I'm like, okay, I need more tools. <laughs> that was a good sign, right? Need more tools. Yeah. Um, so I got a edge gauge which is a, uh, I got it right behind me. It is a piece of plastic with lots of little tiny pieces of plastic. But when little you push fingers. it up against a surface, it, it in, you imprint the profile into it. It's kind of like those, um, oh man, back in the 90s, you had those, actually probably even earlier in the 90s, but what I remember Oh, the little nail toys? The nail toys so that you would press your face into and it would imprint in your face. Into <laughs> the funny it. thing is, okay, get I, I like I don't think they ever really intended that those things were supposed to be pressed into your face. But everyone on earth pressed those things into their face. <laughs> and that's why we got coronavirus now. <laughs> <laughs> it comes full circle now. Yeah. So it this is um basically this is a way to get profile weird edges and stuff and i think it's mainly used for like carpentry so you can like copy a a piece of molding or something like that i used it to copy the folds in a piece of sheet metal that's on the wagon so i could make a 3d printed part that would 
perfectly fit over the uh, contours. And I actually got it in the first go. Nice. I was actually really surprised. Um, so how I did that was I, you know, I just pressed it up and, and got the profile and the, um, the edge gauge actually has a, a, um, a centimeter ruler on it. Basically it has, that has millimeter divisions. And so you can take a picture of it, bring it into your CAD tool, adjust the scale of the picture. So it matches up with your, your one millimeter grid. And then you can actually just trace it, the, the profile and then extrude that out, printed it up. I basically just made a really thin one printed out and it matched perfectly. I'm like, well, I got my profile now. Um, so that was super cool that that worked like out the box. Like it was kind of amazing. That I got on the first try, you know, um, you know, um, uh, Steven Galena, which was a guy that started out at uh, Macrofab with, uh, with myself, uh, he and I used to build guitars and, and we, we got one of those, um, profile gauges and we measured an old seventies, uh, Fender Telecaster, the back of the neck, because the back of those necks were done by hand. And the, so like the, the radius from the heel up to the, the, the headstock is not continuous and it was done by hand. So we did every three inches, we took a profile and then brought those into, uh, I was using Rhino at the time and then we drew, we, we just kind of like skinned the neck and then cut that on the CNC and it was perfect. Nice. Yeah, that's actually, um, when you look these up on Amazon, um, one of the applications they say is for luthien. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I so I really like this tool, especially since it was like $10, which I'm like, it's just amazing. What is you that can buy a for $10. hazard fraught thing? No, it's a, uh, Amazon wonder. Yeah, it's Amazon ten dollar wonder. Um, let's see what the what the title of this one was. <laughs> Coolatron. Oh, I wish. <laughs> F N N I U. Okay. Now. Sure. Great. Um, so that's that's this tool, and then I bought a a uh, dial indicator, which are usually very expensive, but this one was like thirty dollars. <laughs> Um, and, but for what I want to use it for, I'm not taking precision machinist, uh, uh, measurements at all. I actually really wanted this just so I can do radius measurements on device on, on, uh, uh, I guess hard objects like a Coke can or something like that. And so I actually got the dial indicator and I printed a attachment on it. That is a radius gauge attachment for a dial indicator. Basically, it's two prongs that you know the distance between them. Mm. And so when you put it onto a round object, you know, you basically make an arc that you're measuring from. And you throw that into a, a calculator. It spits out what the radius is. And I, uh, it's actually within like a quarter of a millimeter. Oh, that's pretty so good. Point, 0.25 millimeters of... Um, so I was like, okay, I, I'm, that's perfectly fine for replicating stuff, right? Um, well, that, that, that depends. If it's a plastic that goes on the outside of, a, of your car, sure, that's yeah. fine. But if it's the sure, shaft it's that goes in your engine, that's not so good. <laughs> no, you're, you're correct. This is, this is for reverse engineering for building plastic stuff. Right. Um, works perfectly fine for that. Um, so I like this tool. Um, what is this brand? Neotechus. <laughs> um, 
And then I got a angle finder, digital angle finder, which is this one I don't like. It's really cheap feeling. Let, um, let me see it. I'm, I'm... Oh, geez. What? Yeah, so you... As, like, we're an audio podcast, right? And I'm showing something to Steven. Oh, of course, yeah. Oh, and so wow. you have a... Yeah, you get, like, a little finger that sticks out of this device and... Okay, yeah. And then you just... That probably makes more sense showing it that way. Yeah, okay. And so you can, like, I guess, put it against two objects and see the angle in between them. Yeah, yeah. So this is for, like, measuring, um, the, the, like, whatever the, an angle's cut to. Right. Um, so I use this. I, I don't really like this tool. This is a uh, general brand one. It was, like, only $20. Should have probably spent 30 <laughs> <laughs> Um, it doesn't really hold its zero really well. Um, so it's not repeatable. Yeah, it's not very repeatable. It is good enough for what I'm using it for now, but I'll probably get a different one. Probably spend $30 instead of $20. But, um, I mean, it didn't even come with its own coin cell battery. How cheap is that? Oh, that's garbage. Yeah. Um, and so one tool I'm looking at getting next is a good flatbed scanner. And I'm thinking about just like going to like a uh, Goodwill or something and buying one, a used one. That's probably good uh, for like five bucks. Yeah, because I don't really need super high DPI or anything super crazy. I just need a black and white scan, excuse me, of whatever I'm trying to replicate into the 3D realm. Well, 2D, 3D realm <laughs> into the computer. <laughs> so. It's been pretty fun. Um, I I uh, like I, I I'll have to post pictures. But I made like a bezel that fits underneath your steering column in a wagon that has switches and stuff. And I had to like make sure it would fit the openings and the mounting ears would all line up and stuff. It's kind of hard to explain without just showing a picture. Um, so it'll be on the blog. And then I made a rear wiper rest that fits on the back of my tailgate on the wagon. And that one I'm super proud of because the stock solution uh, for a rear... So wagons were built from like 67 to 91, okay? Long time. Never, they didn't change the body at all. They just changed some of the trims over the years. And the uh, rear wiper only existed for the last three years of it. So from 89, 90, and 91. They were the only ones that actually had a rear wiper. And so they kind of like cheaped out a lot on it. It's kind of like hacked together. Um, and it's a kludge. So it, totally, yeah. I don't know why they even added it then at this point. But the wiper, instead of having a little holder that the wiper would rest on, right? Mm-hmm. They actually just put a piece of clear tape on the paint and it just rests on the paint. Hmm. So it's really ghetto. <laughs> um, from factory. So I actually printed a little rest and uh, that's, that was using the gauge finder, for, uh, the uh, edge gauge for. And um, so I get the profile of the sheet metal and I printed out a little rest and I tweaked the the shape of it so it would, when the wiper would come down it would hit the rest and then pull off as it went down farther um works great i have to uh get some pictures of it but the my favorite thing was i was building them or printing them with straight sides 
and it just looked like a piece of plastic on the i mean it is a piece of plastic right but it just looked like kind of like out of place mm. for some reason it, when i was looking at it i'm like man it just sticks out yeah and sure bad. it's a yeah it looked bad it, i'm like sure it's a piece of black plastic on white paint white sheet metal paint but i'm like it still doesn't look that good and so i was looking at other ones like how do they how do they hide it right because it's just this black lump of plastic on the back of a tailgate and one thing i noticed is all of them are like kind of like cone shaped right and so i put a taper in it so i made it like a trapezoid and then i put that one on and i'm like oh it looks great now (laughs) so I, i added a draft angle to my 3D printed object, right? Yeah. And it looks like it should be there now. <laughs> it's, it's just weird how that... How, it's that, it's how ingrained it in your head that plastic should have a draft angle. I guess so. Yeah, I, that's why I'm, Yeah, it has to be that way. <laughs> Maybe that's the solution to... Because you, you, you've talked about this before, where um, 3D printed objects always look like they've been 3D printed. Yeah. And I don't think it's just inherent to, like, the the Layer. uh, layers i don't think it's that because even if you like sand it down stuff it still kind of looks like a 3d printed object um and it could be that that they actually have 90 degree walls they actually have 90 degree angles on them and you're so used to plastic not having that mm, maybe so maybe you can design for not 3d printing 3d printing yes well that like have a how to make your 3D printed object not look like it was 3D printed? Because this isn't, I mean, this piece of plastic it has the, I, I didn't do any post processing, so it's got print lines and stuff. It looks great. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was all in the. I don't, I I don't think like I've a, seen it in its final resting place. You need to post a picture of it. Yeah, I'll post a picture of it yet. Because I, I put it on it last night. Um, I didn't take a picture of it. Cool. Yeah, it's just like. I added like I just added like a ten degree draft. That was it. <laughs> oh, ten degree is a lot. Isn't uh, most draft angles are like one or two degrees? Two degrees, I think, is sort yeah, of. Yeah, like... but I, I I could do that. Yeah, so. right, right. But but that's not even like if you're standing a foot away from it, you wouldn't see two degrees. No. Yeah, no. but you'd see ten. Yeah, yeah. probably. Of uh, ten, ten degrees, the uh, whoever's injection molding your plastic would be like, I love you. <laughs> 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 the prints just or the uh, molds just pop right out. Yeah, we don't even have to have ejection pins on these things; they just no. fall out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, cool, cool. On to the RFO. So uh, this week on the RFO, which is the rapid fire opinion. Oh, I, I, one more thing. Yeah, go back ahead. to that. So, if anyone out there has other reverse engineering tools or tips and tricks, bring it up. I actually kind of think we should have someone on the podcast to talk about that topic. Ooh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Like going, like maybe going through the whole process of like, okay, you want to, uh, you need to reverse engineer an enclosure from a customer because they don't have the designs because some other, you know, a factory that they're moving away from or their uh, place they contracted is withholding their design or whatever. Um, like, how do you go from, like, getting a, you know it needs to look like this to something that, okay, now we can build, you know, a million more of these. You know, on top of that, uh, as a secondary to that, it would be really fun to get a metrologist on to talk about how to measure things. Like, 
how do like when you put calipers on something how do you know what you're measuring like the calipers tell you something but is that right are you doing it right oh yeah yeah and and above and beyond that like uh, great example I, I deal a lot with Hammond enclosures which are cast aluminum and um, or injection mold uh, injected aluminum basically they have uh, draft angles how do you measure a surface that has angles and everything is curved like you have no you have no zero point you have nothing to measure off of yeah but then how do you like actually pick up an edge on that and stuff so i don't know that'd be really fun if anyone knows a metrologist please hit us up that would be really cool too or something someone to talk about reverse engineering um that'd be awesome to get on the podcast because we we've talked about reverse engineering electronics and a lot of times but i think a more mechanical approach would be kind of cool yeah for sure actually having an in-depth one for electronics would be cool too i mean this whole podcast has been dedicated basically to (laughs) hacking and reverse engineering here that's true but like if you need to replicate a circuit board right like how do you do that uh dave jones had a had an interesting video a few years ago about that and uh um, it's worth it's worth looking up basically basically he said that it boiled down to like well you know good luck you're gonna be here for a few hours just staring at like this trace connects to this trace and this trace connects <laughs> to that trace and like yep that's how it goes mm-hmm. uh, didn't you guys get a fancy x-ray machine at the fab yes so you can do some real reverse engineering with that yeah but we don't need to because we're, we're scanning stuff that we build so we yeah but i'm just saying like it. that's that's a a really useful tool oh yes 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 because i guess you can get the metal traces and now you have an image of him well multi-layer boards is what i'm getting at Oh, yeah, you don't have yeah. to guess on those. Yeah. Because I guess on a two-layer board, you just throw it in the scanner. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm holding one up. I have one just lying around here. I bought some boards from a guy a little while ago. And um, I, was, I was curious about improving on his layouts. So I scanned those in and then started tracing them. And then I just stopped because I was like, man, you know, I could just do a better job if I did it from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, like, I like this guy a lot, and uh, and I'd like, his board designs are good, but it's just like, there's so many design decisions that were, like, I was cutting a ton of corners uh, that I was just like, you know what, I might as well just do it from scratch, so. Cool. Okay, now on to the RFO. Yeah, then now the RFO. So we, we've got one RFO this week, and I, I put it up here because I just thought this was really cool. Um, so it's a Hackaday article called, A Nest Motherboard for the Open Source Generation. So there is, um, sorry, I apologize, I don't remember the person's name, but um, they created a full layout uh, for a replacement PCB that goes in your Nintendo Entertainment System, the original NES. So you can actually uh, just download the files and get your own NES motherboard created, and you can replace the guts of your old Nintendo, uh, which is kind of nice, actually, because they're starting to get pretty up there in age, and I know mine has had trouble in the past um, firing up, and that's not just the carts. Like, my actual motherboard's not doing too fantastic. So um, it's cool, too, because this is only a two-layer board. So um, this would make, in my opinion, a really great project for someone starting to get into electronics, and they're getting past that, like, oh, I got an Arduino, now I want to do something more intense and learn mm-hmm. a little bit more. Like, you can get the the entire nintendo schematic it's it's out available which is cool too because it all fits on a single page so you could trace out the entire schematic and get this entire board made 
And um, what's cool is everything except for two parts is readily available. Readily meaning like you probably have to do some eBay searching and things like that. It's not like stuff you can get from Mauser, but um, almost all the chips are available. And uh, you can still buy new old stock processors for the for the NES, but there are also um, newer made uh, CPUs like the UA6527, which can, you can still purchase that. Uh, and that's a drop-in replacement. So go check this out. Um, one of the things that's interesting, though, is some of those replacement parts, like that CPU, have um, they work pretty much 100%. However, the PWM, or the duty cycle output for the square wave sound channels, is reversed. So whenever... So, so the original Nintendo had five channels of audio, and two of them were square waves, and they only had four options for um, duty cycle, which was like 25%, or no, it was like 12.5, 25, 50, and 75, something like that. Uh, so this particular CPU flips those numbers. So when it says play a 12.5% duty cycle square wave, it's actually playing a 75%. And so like it doesn't change the pitch of anything. It just changes the timber, which is really interesting. So I have, hmm. a, I have a website where they do comparisons of like, what is the original Mario Brothers theme song with 12.5% duty cycle versus 75%. And it's one of those things where like, if you're not paying attention, you probably wouldn't notice it. But if you play them side by side, you're like, oh wow, that's actually makes a pretty big difference. And couldn't you easily fix that with a little op amp, amp circuit? Uh, could you? I don't, I don't know if you would. Yeah, you probably could. Yeah, you would just do an inverter. Yeah, if you in, if you yeah, you just invert the square wave, right? If you invert the square wave, then you could fix it. Yeah, actually, you could probably fork this guy's design, add an inverter in it, and just have a CPU fix. Hey, that's a good idea. Hey, someone take my one hundred dollar idea and make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, the only thing is, I don't know if there's actually no. It's, it's even easier. You can probably actually just use a inverter IC. Probably. You don't even need an op amp. You, you just, just have to make sure IC. that the output levels are right. Yeah. I mean, it's square wave. It's digital. Right. But it's I, a one or zero. Well, <laughs> I don't know if the uh, if those channels can be used for any other functions, though, or if they're always ah, gotcha. square. Because if they're not, then that doesn't work, right? You yeah. have to know if they're square. But if, if, if it wasn't, if it's only square, you can use an inverter. If it's not, then you would have to use an op amp and just invert the signal. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that would screw with any phase. If, if you have one of your channels out of phase, that might, I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to see. I mean, I doubt it. I mean, everything is really simplistic with the NAS. It probably doesn't give a shit yeah. about phase. Probably doesn't. So yeah, yeah ch check that out. Um, there, one of the chips that is not available is like the lockout chip for like location and stuff like that. But there's plenty of workarounds and there's other yeah, little think... IC boards that you can build and make and plug into that socket i think my lockout chip on my nintendo i have it disabled so is that just like shorting two pins or something yeah basically the lockout chip thinks it's all groovy all the time <laughs> <laughs> do you have any like famicom games that you play on it no i have it just so that um you don't get the blue flashy screen a lot oh got it yeah 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 
Because usually most of the time that it's failing is when you get that blue flashing screen, it's because the connection between your cartridge and the lockout chip isn't good. Right, right. And so you disable that, and that just disables basically half of the issues that you get with old Nintendos. And then, so basically when you boot it up and the connection's not good, you, you just get garbled stuff on the screen. So then you take the cartridge out, wiggle it a bit, put it back in. Blow on it, eight or nine times. So. Why do we? Why do we like retro gaming? I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I actually went and played. Um, I, I don't remember what game it was. It was some NES game the other day, and I, I started playing it, and then I put it down like five minutes later because I was just like, "This is so damn hard. How did I put up with this when I was a kid?" Like, <laughs> I put up with it because it was thing. all that you had, right? Yeah, all all that you had. Like they 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 made games long by just making them ridiculously hard. Mm-hmm cool well that was the macrofab engineering podcast we were your hosts Stephen craig and parker doman take it easy later everyone <laughs>